Got it, got it. Okay, yeah. so we'll do the so intro. So let's do an intro, yeah. All right, let us know when we can start introducing. Welcome to Gola. I'm Katie Parla, a Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and New York Times bestselling cookbook author. Who are you? I'm Danielle Caligari, assistant professor of Italian at Dartmouth College and writer at large for wine enthusiast covering Tuscany and the Italian South. I like most of that. (laughs) Well, I understand not loving Tuscany, but you do love the Italian South. And guess what? It turns out that they're unfortunately related by the subject that we're going to talk about today. And in fact, that would-be divide is one that we are very, both, I think, very dedicated to steamrolling over when it comes to subjects like this because we worry that the understanding of the distinctions among places in Italy when it comes to the sides of Italy that people don't like to talk about, either because they're Italian and have pride and a little bit of distaste for these elements of their culture and their political reality, as we all do, no matter where we come from, or because they're unfamiliar with them because Italians have been successful at broadcasting their lifestyle as la dolce vita, as opposed to a real place with serious political and at times criminal issues. Everybody knows that the real story is never as nice as the one that's painted on the billboard or that's available streaming on whatever ultra curated and overproduced food and travel television show you're looking at. But I feel attacked. But okay. <laughs> On the contrary, because in fact, one of the reasons why you have an audience that is more diverse and at times more limited is because you have insisted upon making sure that people understand what's going on behind the scenes. And so as a podcast dedicated to food and beverage culture in Italy and hopefully at times managing to show how that can be applied or used in debate beyond – we are, of course, inevitably going to come up against and have to confront the sides of the food system that are unpleasant and upsetting. And we've talked about mafia and food on our podcast before. Hopefully many people have already heard that. If you haven't and you become a patron at patreon.com backslash Golapod, you can roll back to that episode or any of our other past episodes. But we've had several listeners recently ask us to talk more about criminality and the parts of the food system that aren't working either within Italy or between Italy and the rest of the world and how that affects the way that we make our decisions and the items and ideas that we're concerned about and and try to diffuse in our discussions about it. So this podcast episode is not necessarily about mafia and food. It's more about the sides of the food system that we see in Italy that concern us and that we keep both in the back of our minds and at the forefront whenever appropriate in order to inform decisions and to just be more conscientious consumers. Yeah, totally. And I mean, mafia is a literal series of structures and it's also a state of mind, right? Yeah. 
Hashtag yes. Mafia's state of mind. Right. Yes, it is. We need merch. Yeah. Um, and extortion for protection right. uh, is is a feature of like mafia-like behavior that yeah. certainly characterizes parts of the food industry. Mm-hmm. There are also mafia-affiliated agribusinesses that exploit labor, falsify food products, illegally distribute things. I mean, the the uh, Cronica section uh, in, yeah. <laughs> in the newspapers across Sicily, Veneto, Lombardy, I mean, name your Italian region, mm-hmm. and there is breaking news on, on the front page uh, regularly about issues like this, which is so interesting because when you're sort of looking at, at more national coverage, it tends to be like, hey, these people are using an Italian name to support their French brand. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I get that the Made in Italy concept is an important one to protect. But what about like human people yeah. that are guaranteeing that your produce is super cheap mm. while well, you're looking the other way and crying about a French or Swiss or German company? Yeah, so this construction or the the problems that we're talking about, I, I'm, I think that was a perfect introduction for us, Katie, because the issue tends to be kind of compartmentalized in this way that something is either mafia-driven or it's part of an extra-national or supranational structure that can't be contained by the Italian state or the reality or the cultural space or the products themselves that then exploit the actual land and ruin or undermine potential futures of agricultural success there. Mm The, re- the, the truth is that they're all connected and neither, right. right, and there's no beginning or end to it. And all of us are part of the system. So we're not, there's no getting out of it. You and I eat food. And so as a result, we are consumers yeah. and, and participants. Yeah. I'm also very aware when I do my shopping that I can be super conscientious and look up every single brand and tap the news tab and sometimes find, oh, they've been polluting or they've been exploiting right. migrant labor or like fill in your horrible crime that they weren't punished for, enough yeah. for. And everyone can do that. But yeah. it's not something that always feels super comfortable to do or super convenient to do. And that's exactly how these systems persist. Right. So we're just trying to unfold some of those pages and think about it a little bit in the hopes that we can all get closer to avoiding just handouts towards the elements of our system that we don't respect and don't wish to be a part of. Totally. But this is not a new thing, right? It's not a new thing. And that's the that's both the the interesting thing about it in a neutral stance uh, from, you know, research perspective and the troubling, the really troubling thing about it, because it's so deeply rooted that it's not a question of, oh, if I just discard one producer from my my personal purchases, my uh, day to day consumption, then I'm already making progress. Well, no, you have to think about it in a larger scale reality. And this is coming from the fact that the uh, particularly 
agricultural production, but products, consumables from Italy in the food and beverage sector have always been appreciated. In fact, the space that we know became Italy later, but wasn't for so long until 1861, and indeed really much later than that, a a political reality was defined by these products. This is where all of my academic research really lies in the fact that before political realities exist, there are cultural affinities that bring people together. And so the fact that Italian food has this outsized place in our global cultural consciousness is not a coincidence, is not a surprise to anybody who's listening to us here, but the why isn't always clear. And one big part of that is the economic viability of those products and the interest that they could they could evoke in uh, markets outside of either the subregion region or the peninsula even more broadly. And if you look at the question of criminality and particularly organized crime around food, there's a strong connection there because those were the value products. It's not that mafia and food go hand in hand because mafiosi love to cook sauce and... Boy, do they love citrus. Right, exactly, right. But Everyone inst- knows that. Instead, it is, it, it is a question of this was a product of value. Because of that, it was something that was likely to be to have an exploitative market around it and to have people who wanted to, for example, just steal it. And, mm-hmm. and then beyond that, also um, tap into uh, ele- to, uh, stages of the chain of production distribution in order to uh, derive profit. And that meant that starting with you know the kind of class story of the would-be invention of the mafia in 19th century Sicily for as security for citrus farming um, is, of course, really, at, if ever, an anecdotal example because what was happening is that Sicily was a place where to, a political vacuum had appeared in the absence of uh, what were formerly Iberian-based uh, political powers in place that were kind of keep creating stability, if also exploitation under a feudal system. The um, newly formed Italian government came in and created a new system that was equally exploitative, but also even more confusing and not able to uh, police itself. And in comes a slowly more elaborated criminal apparatus that stands in for the absolute absence of state and the absence of policing that should otherwise have been centralized. Right. None of these things are food contingent, but because a place like Sicily was so celebrated for its excellence and diversity of agriculture, it was natural that those were the products that were going to require protection, as it were, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that were going to be used as a... Either literally as currency themselves, or um, as stand-ins for the, th- the, so- the something of value that's worth stealing or um, invading in some way. Absolutely. Are there other instances that we can look to in Sicily in terms of the mafia not acting as a protector, but in working in other capacities in agriculture? Well, we can certainly think of all of uh, really every stage of the process. And I think we don't have to limit that to Sicily. We can, most of that is observable in the Italian South from the kind of modern moment I'm talking about, you know, 
late 1800s into mm-hmm. 1900s up until today. So, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. definitely traversed that imaginary exactly. south north divide. Exactly. The only reason why, and this is again one of the reasons we were uh, interested in having another episode dedicated to corruption in the food system that isn't just mafia based, is because drawing attention to mafia often only re-cements or redraws that line as though mafia is something that is a Sicilian or at least Southern Italian phenomenon. Of course, it's not that the name for it and the um, sophistication of the organization allowed it to be more transportable and kind of translatable. But criminal organizations in many different forms, splintered ones or more centralized and more sophisticated ones, were all over the peninsula and, of course, beyond and depend on networks that are that that expand far beyond those areas. Moreover, the idea of the South being a place where this is a problem, and you and I have talked about this and we can elaborate on it a little bit more, that includes, for example, the importation of people, essentially enslaved or indentured, to uh, perform the labor in these particularly agricultural spaces, but not limited to. There are all kinds of other places along the food chain that we can find people being um, de facto trafficked. But also in the spaces outside of the geographic area that's culturally associated with mafia. So that, of course, Tuscany, and I'm the first person to underline this and don't get smug now, Katie, uh, was not necessarily uh, using this precise format, but we still have Misadria and we still have many of the families or now perhaps corporations that are still that are somewhat more local, are resting on a a multi-century exploitative network where they had a a feudal or feudal-adjacent system in place and people performing labor for little to no remuneration and uh, a certain elite class completely um, existing on the back of that labor. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about these... Um, sort of mafia or mafia-esque or the generally criminalita, one thing that you can do in order to practice due diligence to the extent that someone wandering a supermarket with an iPhone in their pocket or a smartphone in their pocket can, without having to go to every single place, which is somewhat impossible, is just Google the name of the company, not the brand that you see, the name of the company that you see on the back of the label, and Capo Rallato. Caporalato, which is the uh, Italian word for this exploitative labor system, and press the news tab and see what comes up. And you'll be surprised at how frequently the tinned tomato company or flour company or fill-in-your-food corporation Mm -hmm. is involved in these types of uh, terrible practices. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I know. I'm just like I'm (laughs) – I have I have responses locked and loaded, but then yeah. I just yeah. I, guess I mean, also like you get a little you dejected. Just, by, you don't even yeah. have to be in a supermarket. Yeah. You could be me. I'm such an asshole. So yeah. I'll see like a friend like doing like a oh like an ad for this tomato company. Yeah. So I'm like Google the tomato company. <laughs> Google News. Send them all the press <laughs> about like all the horrible things they're doing. Like I didn't know that. Yeah. Are you still gonna post your fucking tomato sauce reel? Oh, you are cool. <laughs> Well, I mean, the problem ends up being that where where do we draw the line? Because mm-hmm. you're you're absolutely right. And 
I I don't think either one of us is advocating for even or advocating for is suggesting that it would be possible to eliminate all of that from your life or to be consciously or I rather constantly conscious of all of the ways in which your purchases are ruining the planet and humanity. But you yep. can but you can I but I also think that our purpose here is is talking about it in the first place mm-hmm. because what many Italian companies have done, but also even a much smaller level, individual brands, some of which the people listening will be familiar with some of the examples of ones that have been celebrated by people like us, if not us, for their low, their kind of low intervention and you know conscientious kinds of production. Then you find out that, in fact, they were also embroiled in some way in this mm-hmm. in networks of criminality, which um, which is. Precisely yeah. because unless a company is completely vertically, vertically integrated, they're sourcing from various cultivators, yeah. creating a level of plausible deniability that is like precisely the danger in all of this. Right. And so that's where I think the as a kind of foundational element here, we can say that thinking about the longer history is something that has great appeal for us, not just for my academic pursuits or for your ability to be a good tour guide and cookbook author, but rather because it allows us to have the context required to understand how these systems were formed in the first place and where we might be able to dip in and support a side of it that makes sense without necessarily having to be doing nonstop day-to-day individual research on product to product. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So one of the issues that uh, we, uh, we know exists is this human labor that's being exploited in a longer history view under uh, systems where it was politically fully legalized and because of that, very hard to really undermine or influence in any way. And now instead has been sort of reshaped into a situation where many agricultural operations are dependent upon the recent, relatively, historically speaking, influx of um, of displaced people from sub-Saharan Africa and Central Asia, In re- again, in the most uh, immediate context. Um, uh, and who are underpaid and often living in tent cities or other really horrific conditions in order to be uh, physically present to perform the labor and uh, to continue with that without any support from the state and without really an expectation of uh, being integrated into the community at, at any other point. We can also make a further list of where things go wrong from there. So one thing is uh, the labor that goes into the production. Then we have questions of distribution that you mentioned, Katie. And then we can even take it a step further to the would-be presentation of the items. So what it means to be in a restaurant or a public eating space of some kind and what's going on there. So first things with distributions, with distribution networks, Italy has... Uh, actually surprisingly effective infrastructure in this way, and that's part of the issue, right? I mean, you go to Rome, who's delivering your food? In Rome, so like for delivery services? 
Well, I'm thinking of you know who the, you know the the if you're in New York and you work in hospitality, you know Baldor. If mm-hmm. you're in Italy and you work in hospitality, oh, so like HQF and those types right. of so these are purveyors exactly. So these purveyors of of you know raw materials or pantry essentials, all of that, are all stocking restaurant kitchens mm-hmm. and and small markets, so even larger scale supermarkets. Sure. All of those are what we would consider to be, and by the way, there are perfect parallels in the United States to this, mafia-adjacent mm. realities, right? Because they're not – It's not difficult. All, that's, no. Sorry, that's a, that's a really broad brush. Many of those have practices in place that are, uh, that are criminal-adjacent. Yeah, and I would say generally in food mm-hmm. service in, and not just in distribution, but also in like the management of wedding venues. Right, exactly. And the, yeah. the – mm-hmm preparation of food yeah. in spaces like that, it's not an open market. It's right. something that's really controlled by several families, some right. of whom are literally connected, others right. who have created a sort of uh, monopoly that they defend in ways that could be nefarious. Right, exactly. And so I think you know, there's, again, because the uh, face of something looks more legitimate, there's a tendency to believe that there's greater legitimacy behind it, but that's not always the case. And that's where we have a really important cultural prejudice that needs to be pushed back against. So again, another way that you can be aware and active that isn't necessarily completely you know, burning everything to the ground that you've bought before and trying to reconstruct from scratch is saying, am I able to patronize in some way a uh, an, an operation, whatever it might be, that is not uh, going to is not a cog in that wheel, sure. right? And um, that's one of the reasons why you and I seek out so many of the off the beaten track places to go to. So you know, mm-hmm. the food of the Italian islands and the other books you've written are about exploring places where people don't know about the food, but it's also about bringing people, or, or the or many things about it, about the culture, the geography, the um, all of the, the aspects that you can get into through food, but it's also about taking people outside of these spaces that are so over-controlled by the, mm-hmm. over and um, over-determined by those production and distribution uh, networks. Mm-hmm. So just, again, Another way that you might engage and be a little bit more conscientious is say, you know what, it does make a difference if I go to some crappy touristy restaurant in the dead center of Rome because it's not just that I'm not going to have a good meal, which actually should be something that you stay up at night and and worry about, but – also that here's me being a contributor to people who I I don't respect the way they mm. do business. I don't want to be part of that system. So, you know, it's sure. it's an option there, right? Yeah. I mean and oh. and knowing the um, uh the way that purveyors of food in large cities uh promote themselves, it's through the cheapest price. It's not through ethical sourcing or responsible agriculture. It's like this is the cheapest price and the way you get the cheapest price is by Uh, excluding labor payments to the people who are creating your food. Exactly, exactly. And then 
There's a side of this where I think, you know, Italy kind of comes out in a gray area, which is interesting, and that's really relevant to the moment. I, people have been having a, a much more vibrant conversation recently about the labor practices and sourcing behind some of our finest dining establishments that are globally recognized. Mm-hmm. And you and I have been chatting about this recently because Uh, As that conversation is going on, Italy is to some extent left out of it because it is a place that has for even with the recent shift towards having greater attention for both from the Italian side of the individuals who are creating establishments and patrons, even as there's been a recent shift towards elaborating their hot cuisine and their fine dining options across the peninsula, it wasn't a place that was likely to be the stage for these kinds of dining experiences. It's not what Italy was known for. It's not what Italy has celebrated. There is definitely now a whole sector that represents a substantial exclusion and exception to that statement. But as we look at some of the places that right now are being taken to task for the fact that they sit on the back of uh, the free labor of Mm -hmm. young up-and-coming chefs or um, other uh, roles within the house, um, Italy is sort of adjacent to that as a place where there's been some representation but not a ton of it. And that's because of an opposite kind of role. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we're looking at restaurants in Italy, what are people doing back of house, front of house? How is that constructed in your experience? In my experience, and since we're we're obviously talking about Noma here, right? Yeah, so, yes, for um, one. But I mean, that came but, out the tail of, of course, a series, that, right? Yeah, yeah. But the tradition in fine dining to rely on unpaid stagiaire work right. is something that in Italy isn't the reality because Italy has now nearly a century, if not longer, tradition of uh, hospitality schools feeding into kitchen work as part of your, you know, your stage as part of your like last year in the um, Scuola Albergatore, you go and you work in a restaurant. Um, I'm not sure if that is contractual labor with benefits, but it's certainly a legally created scenario to the exclusion of anyone else who wants to participate in it. I get 10 emails a week asking me to hook people up with stages in restaurants in Italy, and I'm like, I can't. Like, no one is going to take that risk. It's one of the few. Uh, it's one of the few parts of labor at, in any sector mm-hmm. that people really strictly follow. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, they're pro- restaurants are probably afraid of being narked out for yeah, not employing people yeah. who are of the privilege of the scuola obbligatoria, which means that they have the the um, what's like when you get first dibs preference. Preference, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. they get the preference. Right. Um, and so by not like kind of working with that yeah. group, then you risk right. being ratted out to the labor police or whatever. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it's a it's a and, real thing. And also, right, at the exclusion of just being able to staff your restaurant properly mm-hmm. because it's part of being able to depend on that source mm-hmm. and to be part of that network. Yeah. yeah. And then in the instead in, in the front of house situation, I would say over the past two decades as labor reforms have been introduced and different types of contracts which require, you know, employers to pay benefits for certain contractual levels, people now can get creative with how they structure their front of house staff, giving people the number of hours or at least declaring the amount of net 
profit for the year to reduce their their own taxation um, requirements. So like, for example, let's say I want to hire someone. There's this, I was just reading this. I was yeah. reading so much. I don't know anything about it, but I'm just going to give an example so that you can understand how this type of thing works. Let's say I had like a a little takeaway joint, a pizza by the slice place, and I wanted to hire someone to work for me. Mm-hmm. I could pay them 20,000 euros a year, mm-hmm. 1660 a month. That's what I would pay to the government. Or that's what I would pay to the government and to the employee, mm-hmm. right? Because the, the employee would get like a thousand, and then the other 660 would go to the government for their mm-hmm. contributi various taxes, right? right? So that's if you make up to 85,000 uh net. Mm-hmm. So people basically just go to their accountant and like these are the finances, how can I pay the least amount for employees? Right. And so the um, dominance of the permanent contract or full-time contract is now a thing of the past. Right. And now people can get creative with how they structure hours and wages and contributi are benefits. Benefits, yeah. God damn, I got to get better at this like tax (laughs) and labor thing because (laughs) I read for like four hours about it and I still don't even know the English words. Cool. We're getting there. (laughs) Two two of us together, it gets us. Yeah, it's it's a rough rough topic. Um, But in any event, like in front of house, you now have a lot of precarious workers, people working full time, sometimes under the table work. That's Mm -hmm. increasingly rare. And then family members who are, I don't know what their contractual situation is well i think that's another way that people you know there's within that space most people are doing better as a result of that because they have greater stability it means that you're part of a situation where you're you know going to certainly inherit part Mm -hmm. of that whatever successful part of that business is there you probably aren't paying you probably have very like almost no overhead so even if you're not pulling a salary you're not in a particularly difficult place financially. Um, But the other side of it is that this is why Italians have less flexibility in the labor market, Mm -hmm. because if you are if you're our age right now in Italy and you didn't move into a family business, you are probably struggling more than if Mm -hmm. you had chosen that. And so you may even have a situation where your parents didn't want that for you. They wanted you to have other opportunities, Mm -hmm. but it was the only reasonable thing for to to hand off and to ensure that you were um, taken care of in in the essential ways. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, we see you see a lot of tension there also with people wanting to certainly maintain traditions and take advantage of the amount of work that their parents and grandparents have done before, but also not being able to make other choices, even if that was that's what the family would have wanted for everyone. So exactly. Although TBH, yeah, I wish that I had inherited a big ass company for my family. I, I mean, there are definitely worse things that could happen. <laughs> Where's my company? I know. Move to Italy, I don't get a company? I know, my parents. Give me a break. I, every Christmas I asked. And <laughs> speaking of that, the transition into an Italian-American context, just to wrap up here, because we've already gone on, as usual with these episodes where we talk about like darkness and sadness, I'm like, oh, we'll probably like do a quick one, and then mm. you and I just can't okay. stop talking about how, how depressing our work can be. But... One of okay, one last thing that I actually think can we can pivot into an optimistic element is that 
Um, you and I have talked about this a lot. I think that a lot of people listening are definitely on to this, um, but it's worth underlining. Many of the Italian brands that you see in the United States are the worst of the worst, unfortunately, because, of course, they are the ones who have scaled the most. So they're they're most concerned about margins because they are they, they are also threatened by the, that uh, risk more than a smaller local company would be if they have losses that don't match their projections. It's also uh, because they are the kinds of companies that have probably focused on brand recognition more than quality and uh, certainly more than transparency in their uh, in the way they bring things to market. So with that in mind, and I'm actually, again, trying to get towards positivity here, um, another great thing, another reason to be really interested in the food products that you get and where they come from, and if you can patronize somebody nearby with whom you have a relationship, you have an opportunity to once again sidestep some of the more nefarious practices by saying, instead of getting big box pasta, I'm going to buy it from one of the producers that Katie and I have mentioned in various other places or whatever. Yeah, let's absolutely do it. (laughs) We have our friends in California, Semolina, Artisanal Pasta, and Eto uh, in Paso Robles. And then- That's how you say that? Oh, yeah. yeah, You haven't been to the Central. I didn't know that. Uh, Not Paso Robles? No, no, no. California pronunciations are a lifestyle. And having done my postdoc at UCLA and taught at UC Berkeley, I did a lot of up and down the coast. So weird. uh, Yeah. And on the East Coast. On the East Coast. With no places that have weird pronunciations, such as Gloucester, Massachusetts, (laughs) you can visit... Pastayo Via Corta, Danielle Glantz's delicious, delicious pasta shop and sort of gourmet food and wine shop. And then wherever you are, I guess in the lower 48? Yeah. I don't know. Gustiamo.com can hook you up. Gustiamo is fantastic. And, you know, recently we've had some other friends reach out to us who are supporting the pod. Our friend Bianca at Mermaid's Garden in Brooklyn Holler. does local seafood and actually practices some seasonality, which is very rare to see in um, any kind of uh, fishmongering or, or purveying cool. at, at this point. Uh, we have our uh, places that we go to that will be on Katie's book tour as well. You can always look to those elements. Um, You can also just be at one of those places and ask them what products they use. I know, for example, Pastel Via Corta, Danielle's place, Mm -hmm. has a ton of other products that have nothing to, or apparently nothing to do with pasta, although part of hopefully an enjoyable food and beverage experience Mm -hmm. in general, um, that are all from producers and from the part of the food system that we like to support and uh, allow you to put together a nice, quick shopping that can make you feel good and taste good at the same time. That's been our episode today. Thanks for listening. Just a friendly reminder that Food of the Italian Islands is available where most books are sold, and especially on my website, shop.katieparla.com. You can also catch up with me on events all across, actually, the world now. I've got multiple continents in the mix. katieparla.com backslash events. And uh, 
Come tour with me in Rome. Well, I'm just doing uh, self-promotion. Tour with me in Rome. Come to Rome. You know let's, what? That's fine. We, we appreciate some good self-promotion here. We can add that everyone can follow you at Katie Parla and me at Dr. Caligari's Cabinet on Instagram. But if we want to open that promotion up to not just one but two, you can find both of us and figure out what's going on with the pod at Gola underscore podcast. And you can also become a patron. Yeah. Patreon.com backslash Gola pod. That'd be cool. It would help to allow us to make more episodes for you. It would help us to make all of these episodes more interesting and exciting for you. It helps us to get this video component happening, which makes us slightly sweaty and <laughs> scared. But we're doing it anyway because people want it. So, <laughs> And would allow you to get all of our back episodes and lots of hot new content as soon as it comes out. So please join us at patreon.com backslash golapod on the gram and in our next episode. Grazie di aver ascoltato. Arrivederci. Ciao.